Hi, if I could take a moment of your time before we start. If you've enjoyed previous episodes or if you enjoy this episode, if you could subscribe on the platform that you listen to, that would be really helpful. It helps us get more guests and push the podcast forward. Thanks. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Car Chat Podcast. I'm Sam Moores, and today I'm with Phil Morrison. Hello. Hi. Welcome. Uh, can you tell the audience a little bit about sort of who you are, what you do? Uh, I'm Phil Morrison. I'm owner of Driftworks, co-owner of Driftworks. I guess probably most known at the moment for building a silly Lamborghini. <laughs> <laughs> it's probably the current, most current thing I'm known for. But yeah, I also own uh, Driftworks Limited with my business partner, James Robinson, uh, which is a mail-order aftermarket parts company. Yeah. Okay. And yeah, we've recently done, sort of got stuck into YouTube a, a bit as well in the past few years. Yeah. Um, let me just, let's wind back to the sort of beginning of all this. Um, how, did, how did this all, this sort of journey begin? Were you in the car world from early days or have you sort yeah, of moved across? Sort of, yeah, sort of from very early days, which is quite a long time ago now. Um, yeah, the... The, I sort of came from modifying other things from sort of bikes and all sorts of stuff like that. And then as soon as I was able to get uh, a driver's license, it became cars. And from that point on, from 17 onwards, it's been cars, but messing with them, <laughs> modifying, yeah. tuning, ruining, whatever you want to call it. That's what I've been doing <laughs> since I was 17, basically. And then, so, yeah, how did you get into, at what point did it start turning into a business? Um, it was 2004. We became a proper legitimate company. We've been doing a bit, um, beforehand, uh, sort of working out of, um, the loft at my current house and my business partner's house as well. We'd sort of made space where we could for little bits of stock, but yeah, 2004, it became pretty serious and we started doing it full time. All right. And then presumably a long time 
selling bits and pieces, which I imagine has evolved significantly over the period of time. Yeah. You started drifting. Yeah. So it was kind of also, it was born out of doing drifting and not being able to find the parts that we needed to build the cars in the way that we wanted to, which was all inspired by sort of Japanese sort of semi-professional at that point, what became quite professional D1 GP stuff. We were just trying to imitate it very badly. Um, and yeah, sort of finding it hard to get the bits and pieces that we needed. So decided to start doing it ourselves. So way back then, or back then, um, what, how was the scene sort of, I imagine, was there a scene in the UK as, as such? It was really small and we were there right at the beginning, sort of, I'd say maybe 10 people who had watched a few option DVDs from Japan not dubbed, not in English, uh, just <laughs> trying to understand the basics. The internet was quite a, a new thing at that point. This is how long ago we're talking. Uh, sort of 2001 is when we started our little band of people sort of doing it for fun. Uh, the car builds became a little bit more serious, but they were still largely just based on a normal road car. Um, nothing too serious at all at that point. And were there things like, could you get angle kits and stuff like that back then? Or No, we didn't even know what they were. Um, it was, it took a few years. I mean, at that point, probably the 2003, 2004, we started to understand a little bit more about it. And you got the very basic bits like um, steering um, rack lock spacers, things like that. Uh, the big angle kits really didn't exist until much later on, um, until you've got people sort of seriously into the engineering side of it. Which yeah, is very interesting. And, and then, so you were looking at sort of Japan as your reference point. Were they, yeah. I guess they were way further ahead, but did they have that sort of stuff then? And uh, they were at that point probably starting to modify standard knuckles, standard front knuckles, but cars were, um, they were a lot more stylish back then. It was still really important to have your car sitting at a certain ride height and you'd see a lot of sort of competition spec cars would run too much rear camber just so you can have nice looking <laughs> rear wheels on the back of it. Okay. They weren't necessarily as um, perfected as they are nowadays for grip and traction like most competition drip, uh, drift cars are. Yeah, and could you... At what point in time were this, did this start to be competitions in the UK? Uh, so, I mean, they started very low-key stuff. We used to use uh, Toeston Aerodrome near uh, Silverstone. Mm. Uh, and back then, it was still it was still a used airfield. Um, and they used to wet a tarmac area for us. And we used to spin out just round yeah. cones a bit. And then they started to lay out tracks um, just with cones. And we'd have to go around them. And then the prizes, there was a guy called Kiki Saknana who ran um, Option, which was a garage not far away from Silverstone. And he started to do the championship and bring in some sponsors and things like that. Mm. Um, and it sort of grew from there into then ending up at Silverstone for five rounds of a championship and then to multiple different um, different tracks, proper tracks, but in various different names, different championship names. Yeah. Was it, I imagine it was quite a good time being in at the sort of grassroots of a sport that no one really knows about it's quite cool it's growing you're having yeah, a definitely. lot of fun oh it was it was yeah some of the best times of my life very very busy but yeah 
the um as with most things in my life the car build was a big part of what interested me in sort of developing the car because really we just knew nothing about what was required for a drift car or even you know i freely admit even a track car at that point Mm. i'd just come from my i think my previous car before this 200 sx that i had at that time was a mark ii golf um before that it was a couple of minis and nothing nothing serious at all so yeah this whole sort of new world of rear wheel drive yeah and how you get it to stay in a straight line or not um was really new and exciting to me at that point yeah because i guess that's probably that must have evolved massively because i hear about modern cars it's all about grip 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 which sounds slightly counterintuitive but yeah i sort of get it um (laughs) but then back then were you sort of doing the opposite as in like overinflating rear tires and you stuff were, like that definitely yeah so you were you were in a 200 sx it was pretty standard to start off with it was 200 horsepower um and you'd just dig around the scrap piles at a tire local tire dealer you'd get your whatever that had come off the back of a bmw 225 wide somethings um stick them on your spare standard wheels quite often Mm. Um, do a few laps burn out the inside edge of them because you didn't have camber correction at the rear right you had no alignment arms or anything like that you'd get down as close as you could to the cords then you'd take the tire off and put it on the other way around so you'd then burn the outside of it it was yeah a very different world to the world now of sort of massive um massive wide super grippy tires with full contact patch that we're in at the moment yeah, and then I guess from a sort of scoring point back then, was it kind of just like a style, whoever's sort of done it the most? Yeah, um, often right at the beginning, it was, uh, it was you know, who actually got round and <laughs> ma- maintained drift the whole time. Uh, like I say, we didn't have any steering lock modifications initially. So, yeah. you know, it could be, especially when you've got sort of a, a wetted surface that would then dry in certain places and whatnot, it was quite difficult to maintain angle and not, spin out because you yeah. hit the lock stops um so yeah the the skill back then was lower a lot lot lower but we had nobody here to sort of look up to to follow yeah. and i think that's one thing that nowadays is it's often forgotten is that it's kind of really easy to follow what somebody else is doing in front of you at a track or you follow their line or whatever okay we, yeah. we kind of very much learnt the hard way by basically being crap at it <laughs> <laughs> and then do you think like if you're learning now because i can see you know you can go out and you can put a whole bunch of bits on your car and then have tons of lock and whatever yeah. presumably like you said, running on low grip on variable surfaces with not a lot of lock, you have to be much better initially, like just-ish, I guess. It's it's so much slower. It was so much slower back then. And it was, it's kind of where that, you know, the slightly negative reputation for drifting in, you know, other motorsports is is taken from the old days where you did just used to go half the speed of a track a normal track car going around that same corner would be doing double the speed of what you're doing sideways so a lot of it was style um and line based kind of the same sort of thing but uh yeah it's like i say it's a it's an extremely different world now but back then it was quite easy to spot the difference between the the guy who could do it and the guy who who wasn't that great at it and now it's all so close and so tight i 
just don't envy judges at all in having to pick a difference between drivers. It's a very difficult job. Yeah, I guess you've got you know a bunch of people drifting, small pool of people. Now it's probably a much larger pool, and yeah. then just professional. You've got professionals. It's f- yeah, absolutely. And you know, people are back then. It was we're all working normal jobs, and you know, it was your hobby. It was you put mm. everything into it. Um, and now, yeah, people have got sponsors and all the normal stuff that comes with motorsport is taken very seriously by a lot of people. And some people absolutely ruin themselves financially trying to get to the top spot um, of what they're doing. And it is, you know, it's not as costly as some of the motorsports, definitely not. But um, and it's accessible from sort of amateur levels as well, which is still great. Yeah. But yeah, it's um, it's definitely massively different financially. Um, to what it was back then in sort of the early 2000s. Yeah, and I guess, well, all, all motorsport is just add a few more noughts or a lot yeah. more noughts than you yeah. remotely expect yeah. um, to, to be involved and doing yeah. it. What, what if, if someone wants to sort of get involved now, what are the sort of base you know, things that you can go to. Can you just go somewhere and do some drifting? Cause I know on track days it gets heavenly frowned upon. Yeah. Um, um, the street, obviously not. Yeah. So the, um, the, unfortunately a lot of the, the smaller venues that were fantastic for learning how to drift at sort of low to medium speeds, uh, they're being shut down by noise and all mm. the normal stuff that we get to hear about in all other forms of motorsport. Anything to do with cars is becoming more and more difficult to do. So yeah, the nowadays I don't think there's very much. We lost Rockingham, which was a fantastic venue for us to yeah. do sort of um, decent courses, decent decent tracks and practice days. Uh, the we also used to use quite a lot of the serious big tracks, but certain areas of them, of them or like the Donington Old Melbourne hairpin that used to be a good area to use. Mm. Uh, it's just very difficult and very costly nowadays. So there's not that many of them, but um, there's a few. So there's, I think there's three sisters, which is Wigan ways. They do a few drift days. Yeah. There's Driftland up in Scotland, which is a dedicated drift track, which is extremely cool, but absolutely miles for yeah, most so people. Far, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so yeah, you can still do it if you're keen. Um, it's just, you know, more difficult uh, than it was once was. Yeah. I did a, it was called, I think it was called learn to drift. Oh yeah. At, um, Rockingham. Yeah. Yeah. Which was, um, that was an, an eye opener into how, <laughs> how much I don't know. Um, yeah. Some of it, some of the, um, yeah, some of the experience days and stuff like that They're Um, yeah, it's not quite a hundred percent accurate representation of the actual world of drifting. Yeah. So yeah, it's, uh, yeah, it's, you take it with a pinch of salt. <laughs> oh yeah. I had so much fun though. And yeah. we were in like, I think it was some 200 SXs and a, a, mix of, a mix of sort of other things, um, yeah. just with like welded diffs. And they were just like, you know, go for it, whatever. Like, yeah. <laughs> which was so much fun. Um, but yeah, we didn't have very much lock and that was, no. uh, and talent. I didn't have much talent, <laughs> <laughs> but no, it was, it, was, it was a lot of fun. So you did, you've done a bunch of competing over your time. Yeah. And did is that sort of being tied along with the business or yeah. just sort of outside? It has it has well yeah kind of the reason the business exists is because things were getting a little bit more serious. We wanted these yeah. parts, we couldn't really get them. Um I was still working a normal job and so was my business partner at the time. Uh and we do what we could in our spare time. We decided to then start up the business and um 
yeah, it kind of it just snowballed from there. The the uh, the championships became more and more serious, and there was actual you know decent back then decent ish prize money and right, yeah. prizes to win. They had good support from sponsors and all sorts. So you could kind of, if you were reasonable at it, make it work financially for a year yeah. while still having a normal job. Um, but yeah, I've uh, I won the the earliest one that I won. I'd, I've always done I'd always done all right ever since I'd started doing it, mm. sort of podiumish level. Um, but then, sort of, the, some of the bigger ones were the 2006. Uh, it's called the D1 GB Championship, which was uh, a spin-off of the D1 GP Japanese Championship right. that was running running the UK. It was judged by proper um, Japanese drifters they'd oh, come cool. over for every round it was really cool uh that was probably one of my biggest um claims to fame is nice. winning winning that championship in 2006 and then kind of uh, steadily competed most years and i'd do sort of uh second or thirds in the championship i think i won a, won a championship again in 2009 but it was a different championship then it become um what was it called then there's been so many revisions yeah. of the the um, high end drift championship. I can't even remember what that one was. It was the British Drift Championship at that point. Yeah, yeah. so that, I won that in 2009. Cool. And I've had little breaks from time to time as well because I've been doing it for quite quite a long time. Mm. I'm sort of keen to not um, lose the love for it, uh, and I think it's important to sort of step away from stuff sometimes. Uh, just to sort of reset yourself, yeah, um, and come back in a bit keener later on. But does, that, does that mean something you've sort of, you know, had to sort of struggle with? I, I, I find it like I'm talking to people about cars all the time. I'm driving cars all the time. Or, uh, sometimes I, I just literally just go, I, I can fucking care less anymore. I'm done. Absolutely. Like just <laughs> I need to do something else for as yeah. long as possible, and then yeah. come back and I'm a bit invigorated again. Yeah, I mean, mine is. Um, it's probably uh, less less about moving away from cars. It's more about moving into a different area of messing yeah. about with cars. So, um, get I'm rather over the top with everything to do with cars. But <laughs> yeah, um, so yeah, I'd move away slightly for a year from doing um, competitive drifting, but I'd then focus my efforts into building something silly as a track car yeah. or um, or. I don't know what type of car half my stuff is nowadays, but <laughs> but yeah, sort of building something. And that, as I said before, it's kind of where I get a massive amount of enjoyment out of what we do is is the actual build part of the cars as much as the driving them. Yeah, and then and then presumably at some point they invariably end up, hopefully not, but contacting something solid, and then you've got to rebuild them again. Yeah, is that, <laughs> I guess that's a sort of necessary evil. Is that is that a quite a stressful part of it, or you just sort of accept? With the drift with the, cars, anyway, it sort of is what it is. Yeah, with the competition cars, you kind of, um, especially nowadays, you design them about around small impacts or even slightly okay. bigger impacts. You sort of um, you have crush zones, you have flexible panels, you have in some cases um, damped bars on the back section of the car that okay. would allow you to sort of slowly crash into a wall and yeah. run the wall rather than digging into the wall, things like that. Um, so you you definitely don't have quite the same um, consequence as we did back then when we were doing sort of a road mm. car type of thing. It would be a massive expense to repair the rear quarter of a car back yeah. then, but now it's it's relatively simple. And I, I, I guess, yeah, because I, I remember I've seen 
bumpers. Whenever someone, I don't know whether this is like this at the sort of top end now, but you see someone do some drifting and they tag the bumper and it just like flies off. Yeah. And then they yeah. put a bit of, you know, duct tape it back on again or whatever. Yeah, I mean, it is a little bit like that. Some some championships have rules where you're not allowed to sort of lose panels um, okay. and you'd get, or you'd get heavily marked down in points if you you go into something hard enough to cause damage to a car. That's kind of seen as beyond the line. Some of yeah. it, like rubbing a wall is cool, crashing into a wall and taking panels <laughs> off, not so, so not so much. It's, um, yeah, it's frowned upon by the judges as well. Yeah, because you see a lot of cars with the, well, I guess the no bonnet thing, is that, is that for cooling? <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm not, I'm not entirely sure. Um, yeah, a lot of, I'm probably not the best person to talk to about a lot of the styling choices in yeah. drift cars and especially high, high level competitive drift cars because I'm not a massive fan of most of what's out there, to be yeah. honest with you. The uh, sort of things poking out of a bonnet or, like you say, a, a lack of bonnet or, you know, bad wheel fitment or anything like that. It's, it's pretty offensive to my eyes. A lot of no, it. I know you are particularly keen on wheels and tyres fitting yeah. Yeah. correctly and yes. spend. I guess spend a lot of time making sure it's... Yeah, and I did always, uh, you know, past the point of using standard rear wheels. We used to swap standard rear wheels onto the car and run standardised tyres, but have your stylish wheels up front, and that looked absolutely terrible. (laughs) Past that that point where you're actually moving into sort of being able to use a a cheap remold 225-35-18 on the rear of your car, then, yeah, the fitment sort of became quite important. Um, nothing bugs you more than doing a well at a competition and seeing the photos afterwards and just going, bet. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> what does my yeah. car look like? <laughs> yeah, that photo, you're like, I want to put that on the wall and then yeah. you just, brain is going, nah. Yeah, so, not for me. Because you, I've, I don't know when I first came across Driftworks and some of the builds. I think I've watched some early stuff, early stuff with it. The AE86, how, how long have you yeah. had that car for now? Um, I think is that build that builds like eight or nine years old maybe yeah. something like that and we had to we built that uh because the previous competition car that we were using was uh nissan Silvia s15 which is basically like the 200 sx s14 models yeah. but a new version a prettier version and we had a um 2jz engine in that but it was mounted through the bulkhead it was actually pushed through the bulkhead quite far um and with kind of a front mid-engined car right and at the end of 2009 i want to say maybe they changed the rules to make that illegal um for a competition car which i fully understand because not everybody would do it as safely as we did it with that car and professionally they had to sort of create a, a bit of a new rule book that meant that that car was no longer eligible to be used in a UK championship. So, yeah, we we then set about the um, DW86, as we call it, which is an old 1986 Toyota Corolla, which was kind of merged with, at the time, um, a UK NASCAR, which is called an ASCAR, an old <laughs> series that um, from Rockingham that had become redundant and the cars had basically sat. And we bought one for an old race car with an LS1 in it for, oh, I was probably about seven grand back then. And slowly started sort of merging parts into the 86. It was like a massive year-long build to create the chassis to allow the sort of power that we we're going to run and 
uh, allows to, more importantly, to run the big wheels that we needed for the grip that we needed, which meant that obviously then coming back to how particular I am with ride height and wheel fitment, yeah. the car had to be super low. So the the modifications to the chassis to allow that were sort of massive, absolutely massive. Um, and yeah, that then ended up snowballing over the following three or four years with a couple of rev- revisions that essentially meant that there was none of the original as car parts <laughs> left in it, aside from the rear winter's live axle, which is an absolutely huge thing. Um, that was probably the only part that remains from the original build and then everything else has been upgraded to sort of bigger, better, stronger, uh, sequential, quite sequential gearbox and um, 454 LSX engine, but like a built one, so 7.4 litre naturally aspirated engine and what as usual is <laughs> it just all sort of started to snowball um from concept <laughs> and then what sort of power numbers and oh, and weight with that is that sort of now uh so that's it's quite he- very heavy for a, a toyota corolla for an a86 it is uh 1160 kilos but it's 720 horsepower in its um in its primo level it's currently got a slightly downgraded engine in it which is a mere 670 horsepower I think, <laughs> something like that so it's pretty wild it's um a very wide car still quite a short wheelbase even though we've lengthened it substantially to try and calm it down mm. a little bit um but yeah it's quite a wild ride it is one of those cars that i i still can drive after this many years and get out sort of full of adrenaline trembling yeah. <laughs> just going oh my god <laughs> So yeah, a lot of fun. Not not the uh, most competitive car, I must say. It's uh, the Sylvia's um, are a proven recipe. It's something I knew really well. I knew really yeah. well how to set up. This um, is more spectacle than competitive. It's people absolutely love it because it just tries to kill me all the time. Basically. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Because I I feel like there's been a, a shift. I've definitely feel like I've seen this in Formula D, but from Cars like the Sylvia, which I imagine are reasonably nice to drive, yep. to what is the most crazy, stupid, shouldn't work with the most exotic engine combination, yeah. and then driving that. Is that that seems it, to be sort of what's defi- happened? To yeah, some definitely. There's a couple of paths you go down, um, and one is if you just want to be competitive, then you just choose uh, S15 or an S14. Um, chassis and you put a 2jz in it uh some kind of substantial gearbox substantial axle in it you put wise fab front and rear suspension on it um with the angle lock kit and the traction kit for the back and you know you know there's lots of little bits that go in between now all the supporting stuff yeah. but essentially that's the recipe that you use to win and that's what you'll see the likes of um james dean and anybody yeah. that you c- constantly see winning will choose something like that uh, and then the other option is you, I don't know, you choose to stand out or you choose to do yeah. something different that sets you apart. And that's always much more challenging, often much less successful uh, <laughs> yeah. in terms of uh, competitive results. Uh, but for me, um, it's always more enjoyable um, to do it that way. I have an S15 as well. It's a practice car, um, sort of 420 horsepower, the normal engine in it but a forged version bigger turbo etc quite a a sprightly thing but nowadays that would not be competitive against yeah. what's out there at all it's um it's too heavy it's not extreme enough it's um 
I just have that to sort of enjoy at practice yeah. days or did when we could do practice days because, yeah, I actually haven't driven that one for a while. <laughs> yeah. Uh, sad times. Well, with the um, DW86, that development over the time, because it's such an iconic car for that com- community, mm-hmm. has it, was that just a forever learning experience of test, brake, fix? Yeah drive test etc etc it certainly was and we're still doing that now we had um had a bit of time out again from doing competitive drifting sort of during lockdown and everything there wasn't much going on anyway but I haven't used the car for ages and uh, we decided to get it out for a special event um at mondello park in ireland called lz festival a month or so ago and um yeah we were still, we were st- at the end of the last time we used it, we had a big long list of stuff that we wanted to try to improve yeah. to actually get the car to go where I want it to go because it does at times have a bit of a mind of its own. Um, and with all the grip and all of the power, it's, it's you're hanging on for dear life and it's taking you around a track. You're doing your best to sort of keep it where it's supposed to go yeah. rather than actually di- directing it like you would with a normal um like an s15 or something so we were doing that and sort of rebuilt a few bits and pieces on the rear axle just before this big event in mondello made massive improvements to the car huge improvements to how steerable it was but yeah, it was still a complete animal <laughs> still sort of hanging on for dear life and i've still even now after eight years got plenty of ideas just of uh, improvements i'd like to make to it to just make it a slightly better more comfortable place to to be to drive um, to be more more accurate, potentially more competitive, but yeah, still with that spectacle, the drama that it brings yeah. to pretty much every event that it goes to. And in terms of like how tricky it is to drive, what's the sort of things that make it so challenging? Um, primarily, it's it's squareness is a big part of it. The um, the width of the car versus the length. It's a relatively square car, so when you have um, a perfect contact patch on a live axle you have kind of almost no deviation from perfect contact patch um, throughout the entire course uh it's extremely grippy and the difference uh, and what how the car reacts to sort of on throttle is absolutely fine when you need to adjust and sort of a live axle comes into play old school technology um it can be quite challenging to put it where it needs to go um it can sort of like say have a bit of a mind of its own uh, and we did make big improvements. I do think we're on the right track with it. But even now, after this many years, I'm still learning things about live axle setup, mm-hmm. from mostly from sort of drag racing and okay. things like that. Still learning about um, how to get it to to be a little bit similar in how it reacts on and off throttle. That's the big part of it for me. Yeah. And then, okay, yeah. But it sounds... Sounds like it's quite interesting. Are you then reacting to the car a lot, like slightly unexpectedly to the car a lot versus, I don't know, driving a nice 911 or something? You know, it sort of just does what you want it to do. You definitely are. Um, There's a lot of steering input in that. Um, If, you know, you go back on the channel from years ago, there are a few um, videos of my S15 and how I used to drive that, which was kind of fingertips on the steering wheel yeah. type of stuff and chuck and catch the steering wheel yeah. whereas this is more like 
clawing around constantly. <laughs> um, you know, the, with the in-car from the last event that we did, um, I was watching it back during the edit that we were doing. And at one point, I'm in full drift up against somebody's door while I'm following them. And at some point, my hand ends up on the wrong side of the steering wheel and I'm actually steering like on the inside of the steering wheel. It's just like flailing about. Which is, uh, I imagine it's not the first time it's happened, but it was the first time I caught it on camera. Yeah, and I was yeah, like, what, yeah. what is going on with this thing? It's yeah, absolutely yeah. hilarious. Your brain's having an absolute fit trying to yes. just keep up with. Yeah. So that, actually, that, you're probably a good person to, to ask this question. If, if you're driving a car and not necessarily drift intentionally drifting mm-hmm. so, uh, i don't know maybe you're on a track and it breaks loose more than you would expect and you've got to apply more than let's say a, a, a sort of full left rotation yeah what do you do do you inst- do you automatically let go or do you keep well, if, how do you deal with that situation it completely depends on the circumstance of what you're aiming towards when that's happening yeah. for one um but in general, my hope would be that if you've got that amount of steering lock, you're in a place where it's relatively safe to have that amount of steering lock. And as long as you kept your foot planted to the throttle, you could pretty much steer out of it and straighten up if you needed to, or give it that extra kick and send it a bit more sideways. And then you can do the old catch and hold technique yeah. on on certain cars. It's sort of um, it's very difficult on some. They obviously react very differently. 911s are notoriously hard to drift, and that is accurate, especially mm. old ones. New ones, not so much. The 992 GT3 is quite enjoyable on the limits. Uh, it gives you a bit of a false sense of security when it comes to how much angle you can push because you run yeah. out of steering lock quite quickly on that car as well. But, um, yeah, it's a cho- the choices are kind of determined by what's in front of you and whether you want to style it out <laughs> or straighten <laughs> up i guess <laughs> and is it interesting driving a lots of competition cars and cars that have been built for drifting and then at the same time having road cars and probably doing the odd drift every now and then like does that translate very nicely or is there sometimes things you pick up from doing too much of one that doesn't isn't great to do in the other i think from my from my angle having done very little um, in fact next to no track driving at all before i started drifting yeah. that was how i learned to drive on track it was on drift days um so i think that it translates really well into track driving i love track driving that's what i do nowadays i don't really do mm. much drifting at all really um but yeah track days are kind of my fun thing and i think that what i learned in drifting gives me the ability to es- escape bad situations perhaps better than yeah some other people um it gives me the comfort to push a little bit harder in some areas and uh, to ruin tires if i feel like it um <laughs> which is fun and for the most part it puts a smile on people's faces you do get sort of the uh end of the scale where you know you've done a few laps of a wet donnington and you you know that the marshals are having a good laugh watching you yeah and then it ends in <laughs> it ends in the black flag <laughs> uh that was in my that was in my 972 gt3 uh, back in the day, I was how am I getting away with this? How am I, mm. how am I being allowed to do this? Oh, no, I'm not being allowed to do this anymore because I just pushed that a li- that little bit too hard on that one. No spinning, but yeah, definitely. Um, it's where I get a lot of enjoyment, even on, tra- on a track day, which is why my choice is always a real drive car. 
and yeah. even if it's for a grip track day car, it'll be rear wheel drive. Yeah. Your, so you had a 907.2 GT3 mm. for, for a long time. Did yeah, you, still got did it. Did you sell I, it and buy it back? Uh, yes, I did. Yeah. <laughs> so um, I, I sold it. I can't remember how. Anyway, it was 2010. The car was 2010. So I must have bought it in late 2012. Owned it for about a year and a half. Um, and I'd done quite a bit of work to it, uh, including putting a lightweight flywheel in it. Okay. And a silly heavy clutch that it didn't need. And then I tore my calf muscle running. Oh, no. Uh, and that, my left calf muscle. So that versus clutch meant that that wasn't the ideal car for me to own. Yeah. So I decided to get rid of it. But then I uh, kept in contact with the guy that I sold it to, and he had it for five or six years. I jokingly put up a, an Instagram post saying, you know, remember this day when this was in the workshop, I, I think it was on the ramp. I'd owned it for like, I don't know, half a day or something. And I was already fiddling about underneath it. Yeah. And he just messaged saying, you, you can have it back if you want. And I was like, oh, wait, hang on a minute. <laughs> that sounds like a great idea. So yeah, I've, I've now owned that for two or three years again. Um, and it's one of those ones because it's Riviera Blue Club Sports. Yeah, spec of it. it's super it's, nice. Uh, yeah, it's, um, I get asked a lot about selling it um which I, I don't want to do so i've managed to put people off recently by giving them a price of how much i'd sell it for oh, okay yeah they soon go away then <laughs> <laughs> which is great so um yeah i've got that and then the 902 gt3 as well which i'm lucky enough to own as well how how do those two compare and do you sort of a, do you get different things out of each car i really really do the um they're obviously from you know they're, they're the same thing essentially um, and the recipe for naturally aspirated rear-wheel drive um, truck car is the same throughout. One of them is the last Metzger um, 3.8 apart from the RS that are made in that year and manual as well. Um, the other is PDK uh, because I daily drive the carts of all my cars. That's the one that I'll end up in every day if I mm. can. Um, but on track... They're wildly different. The 9 and 7 on the edge is a bit bitey, like the old school cars, but you know, not as bad as the 964. Yeah. Um, but the 992 is just unbelievably comf- comfortable at speed, like really, really high speed and giving you the feedback that you want. Um, it was... It kind of, it wrecked me a little bit. As often throughout owning various cars, I've got a new car and it's kind of, I say, I say it's wrecked me because it's given me a new perspective on cars for the future and everything that I've done in the past kind of feels massively inferior. Yeah. And that's what happened when I got into the GT3. Well, it happened first with getting into E46 M3 back in the day and then um, progressing to the 9972 GT3. And that really just changed the game for me. And I have had a, I had a 9-on-1 GT3 as well, PDK, absolutely adored that car. I thought it was absolutely brilliant. The only reason I sold it was because I put a deposit down on a new GT3, but that then took six years to get <laughs> put a deposit down, and it took six years to actually get the new GT3. But still very lucky, um, very lucky to own the two. Um, the It's kind of almost unfortunate that 9 and 7 is worth so much money nowadays because I worry about driving it a bit yeah. more than I used to. The bizarrely, the 992 I'll smash about everywhere, um, take it anywhere, do pretty much anything in it. But 
the old enemy road salt is a little bit more concerning nowadays for the 997 so i don't drive it quite as much in winter i check yeah. my days very carefully um and it's kind of currently set up more as a road car with uh pilot sport 4s's on it rather than cup yeah. twos i have the cup ones for it the original ones but I've done <laughs> they were those. a bit dicey yeah well they were yeah they, i think the ones that are on it currently on those wheels are about 12 years old as well, so they're absolutely yeah. lethal um but yeah in terms of driving dynamics kind of similar in a way i do really enjoy manual cars on track but the pdk is an unbelievable weapon as well it's yeah. um yeah it's such an enjoyable car to drive it's it's an interesting one that one because i've driven i did a what have i driven i've not driven oh, i've driven a 992 pdk but on the road um and then i've, I've got a 997 gen 2 rs mm-hmm. uh, 3.8 very nice that I've had for nine years or something now and I've got a bit of that like what you're saying with your 997 where I used to just drive it all the time whatever happy days and it's gone up in value which is it's great Mm -hmm. no worries (laughs) but I'm also now more aware that it's a bit older and yeah I just don't I just don't drive it anywhere near as much I think I'm also changing as a person I, I like slightly less Day to day, I like slightly less hardcore stuff. Yeah. Like, I just want to be. I'm kind of with you. I've sort of held, held on for dear life, trying to um, <laughs> keep my youth. But yeah, there's definitely some something to be said for having a slightly more comfortable car. In fact, actually, I'd say that in terms of road noise and um, general driving, the 997 is a is a quieter car um, mm. to be in than the 992. The 992 is incredibly harsh in terms of cabin noise and. Um, it's not a it's not a stiff car. Um, it's not like overly firm in terms of suspension, but yeah, you definitely feel everything. You hear everything, and yeah. it's not the one to have a particularly nice stereo in and listen to. Yeah, you can't hear that much. audio or anything like that. You enjoy the sound of the engine and and driving um, and sort of holding gears a little bit longer than you normally would and things like that. Yeah, yeah. I felt like when. Even I was surprised with 991, actually, how loud the in-car engine noise was on 991, yeah. uh, Gen 2s and stuff. And then 992, I felt like 992 GT3 was more similar to my RS than yeah. previous GT3s. I'm totally with you, yeah. It feels... that's I'm not really bothered about um, ever getting the RS because I'm more, I'm more into sort of the road, road side of a GT3 mm. ownership. Um but the the nine nine two is very RSE um, in terms of uh, its feel, its noise, its level of comfort, etc. It can still do everything you need to as a road car, uh, but yeah, it definitely felt like they'd brought the RS into the GT three more than ever. Yeah, I just I you know if it was my choice as a road car, I'd definitely have a bit more uh, sound insulation in there. Hundred um, percent because I do daily drive the car like I say, whenever I can. And it's definitely notable, especially motorway journeys. It's it's a very, very loud car to be in, um, you know, to the point where I've questioned whether I should just have like a Turbo S instead, but I just, I would miss the yeah. engine. Um, the NA engine is everything. It's really tricky, isn't it? I have mm-hmm. a 991.2 GTS mm-hmm. at the moment. as my sort of daily-ish. Um, and even that, that's like kind of annoyingly too loud. Um, and I then I, I ordered a 992 but I, I think actually weirdly it's not going to come through no. because the production's going to end before my car kind of exists yeah. um, 
and anyone that listens to this podcast will have this topic done to death. So apologies, <laughs> but the, um, you can spec, uh, noise in isolating windows. Oh, you can the 992. You can get... um, you can, you can. I don't think you can on GT3, but right. on all the other ones, it's like yeah. slightly thick. Actually, I think they're thinner, weirdly. Right. It's the lightweight noise. They've got a film in the middle of them. Yeah. Um, and it knocks the decibels down a little bit. Um, and what else I hear recently? Spike Farrison. I don't know if you've come across him. American guy. Um, he has a new... He has a 992 GT3. And I believe it was on whatever tyres it came. And he's changed them to Pirelli PZ4. I think they're, I think they're PZ4s. And mm-hmm. I think you can get them on the turbo. Yeah. And he said they're noticeably... Now, I want to... I don't... I need to talk to someone who knows about the specific tyres. He said they're noticeably quieter. Yeah. And he said his... He has a touring. He said it's gone from... It's too loud to... Hmm, this is not so bad. Yeah. Is, you, I mean, you can... You notice the difference straight away just putting P4Ss on. A, right, a road yeah. tyre is... A big part of designing a road tyre, I think, is is noise. Um it's it's high up there in what matters, but yeah, Cup Twos, they're pretty bad. Cup Ones back in the day were absolutely awful, and basically anything with more rubber touching the ground in general yeah. will always just transmit more um, resonance, more harmonic resonance through into the shock absorbers into the cabin, um, and just everything yeah resonates like that. But that's that's interesting because, like I say, I do tend to use my um, the nine nine two quite a lot on the road, so it's on. I, there was the old um, tyre roulette when you actually got your, yeah. your car back in the day. So fully expecting Cup 2s turned up and I had the, um, uh, what are they, the P0, the Corsas? Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. So I had those on. Proper disappointment. It's um, really annoying, isn't it? Because I, well, I just felt, you know, I've always just trusted Michelin, you know, track tyres essentially. Yeah. Uh, but they were absolutely phenomenal. The first time I used that car on track, I was absolutely blown away by how good they were how, how well they handled heat. Um, so, yeah, maybe maybe I'll stick with um, that one, maybe go even more road tyre if I do burn through this set anytime soon. That's it. That's like I, on my RS, I'm, I want to put it on a set of 4Ss or something. It's on Cup 2s at the moment. And I've got to wait till I run these tyres out and they last forever. <laughs> <laughs> they, they really do, don't they? They don't come with a great deal of tread, but, yeah, they last really well. Um, during normal driving yeah, circumstances, definitely. The one thing I will say, though, is the P4Ss, I have used the 997 on track with the P4Ss, and they're just crap. They are, yeah. They'll hang on for a, a couple of laps, and it's okay. But, yeah, the, you just end up torturing the tyre. You can feel them rolling the tread blocks. Yeah, and, uh, yeah it's kind of the, the last place I drove that um, hard was at Spa. It was a good choice because... I had no idea what the weather was going to do and sort of gave me a little bit of both worlds. But mm. um, unfortunately, yeah, well, it was nice and dry. And yeah, the tyres were just not up to the job of a, of a track like that. So I would say, yeah, road tyres, but just swap on something decent if you're actually yeah. going to use it on track, definitely. Yeah, yeah and they'd last. Like, Cup 2s can deal with it. You don't, you're not just going to melt them and yeah. kill them. Um, yeah. 
Unless you so, do uh, drifting like my, my mate Al <laughs> well, in his yes. 996. <laughs> we ran out of tyres quite quickly one, one day at Donington, and that was my, I think it was my first go in the 992, and he was following me or you know, swapping, yeah. and he was in his 996 GT3 as well. But, yeah, that got a little bit leery, and, yeah, he may or may not have driven home on the cords. <laughs> Good times. My, my first... One of my early, early track experiences was in my RS and took it to Goodwood and the tires were quite low and, mm. and I didn't, I didn't really think about it much, but it rained yeah. and then combined like track with like rubber on the track and then rain and no grip. I had some proper, especially like just proper heart and mouth. Oh, <laughs> I'm going to die. Yeah. Managed to survive. And then we're yeah. like, oh, you really know about, when those cars step on you with all the grip that they have and yeah. like say all the tire width yeah there's not there's not a lot of progression to not a lot of time to catch something yeah. like that when it does start to get a bit wild there's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with plush care plush care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board certified physicians who can prescribe fda approved weight loss medications like wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify take charge of your health and speak with a board certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss that's plushcare.com slash weight loss plushcare.com slash weight loss planning for your next trip elevate your travel style with quince Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. You've you've got some really a really cool collection. I say collection. I just mean a group of. I don't know whether you call it a collection um, of cars. All uh, most of them I look at and go, yes, that is. I love what you've done. Whether it's the so you've got an E thirty M three that is a track car. Yeah, that's my track car. That one, yeah. Messed with quite a bit. Yep, it's um, basically taken. The concept was to have an E30 M3 shell. I'll, I'll emphasise that it started life as a shell. I did not take an S14 engine out of a lovely mint E30 M3. <laughs> I had a, a, it was a shell, and it's got um, the running gear engine and drivetrain out of the E92 M3, so the last naturally aspirated M3 nice. engine ever made. Um, it had DCT. We are currently, as those of you that follow us on YouTube, are in the process of removing the DCT and putting it in the bin because it's caused us nothing but drama for sort of five years. And that is purely just because of the aftermarket control of it. It's all, you know, a, a DCT E90 M3 or E92 M3, fantastic place to be, one of my favourite cars. Uh, it's just never worked in this particular car with mm. the um, management that we're using, etc. So, yeah, that's currently going in the bin and it's having a drenth sequential put in it as well because again sort of it it's use changed initially it was going to be kind of a road car that i used on track but yeah i love it so much it's my um it's my favorite thing to steer i've ever made by nice. a very long way uh so yeah it's just resigned to pure track car duties now so i can just have the noisy sequential in it why do you think it's 
why do you think it's so you enjoy it so much um the it's purely balance i think i mean a, a big part of it is because i kind of have made slash touched every single component on that car and designed it to work in a way that i want it to based on everything that i've learned over mm. the years through building whatever car it may be from previous track cars to even drift cars or anything like that and it just steers uh on the edge um on very minute slip angle it steers beautifully it's perfect in in terms of its balance front and rear uh it doesn't drift unless provoked it doesn't understeer unless provoked it really requires um your attention to drive um but and it's just phenomenally quick uh one of the one of my favorite moments in it is chasing down a gen 2 901 gt3 rs <laughs> at donnington and lap after lap after lap just staying <laughs> staying up his chuff and the, the guy coming over afterwards in that normal normal way of like just going what the is in yes. this <laughs> what have you done to this so things like that make me smile a lot when i it's something that i've made as well and made work that well it's yeah quite important and i guess do you like that kind of i'm not quite underdog but vibe of a car that everyone looks at it and goes okay well you know you with all your cars you know there's something going on because they all look pretty something's mm. going on with them but like it's got a crazy engine versus what it should normally have and therefore it, everyone's yeah. kind of shocked by it. <laughs> yeah um yeah, sort of the surprise element is is, is a good thing. It's always uh, it's always enjoyable. Not not to be mean about anything at all, because obviously that that was a well driven GT3 RS. It was a oh, fantastic yeah. car. I just sort of the fact that I in the initial concept was a car for the car was the reason why that E30 M3 is blue is because it's Riviera blue, and the reason it's Riviera blue is because I decided to build that car because I'd used the 997 gt3 back in the day for track days yeah. and i'd done i think i'd done two track days i'd done uh, a set of brake pads i'd done nearly two sets of tires and i'd smashed a windscreen on it just having a, a chip come up on track yeah. and it was such expensive track daying i decided that you know i'd i'd step into something that yes yeah, an e30 m3 is an amazing thing but it's kind of something that i was going to make and I wouldn't be in too much trouble if I binned it. Yeah. Um, you know, it would be repairable at all times. I wouldn't need to worry quite so much about it um, depreciating or anything like that. So, um, yeah, that's how that started and why it ended up being Riviera Blue as well. Yeah, that's that something I realised as, as I started doing a bit of racing and ended up getting a race car and stuff like that. The road cars, I just didn't... I took them on track, like every now and then just to if I get a car I've kind of got to take it on track at some point just to see how it goes push the limits a bit and whatever and then normally just go back onto the road and it may not go on the track again because the <laughs> idea of going in the gravel in something that's got nice paint and yeah. it's in is you know you look at and you're like oh yeah those wheels look great then you send <laughs> it into the gravel and <laughs> you get a massive bill versus and, something built for it it's quite know, a different yeah. experience isn't it yeah, and I don't know whether you're the same as me, but I, I have to stop myself before I end up in that situation yeah. as well because yeah. the moment I'm in that situation with that car on track and especially when you're surrounded by your friends going fast or people sort of in yeah. equivalent cars, you kind of forget 
every little bit of common sense <laughs> it's just a, yeah. a bloke thing i guess maybe but uh, an ego thing fun. maybe i don't know yeah. but yeah it's just fun and yeah you come I, sometimes i i'd manage to just stop myself and just go well we're part way through the track there here you don't need to bring it out to the end of the track there you've had loads of fun and you haven't crashed your yeah. 250,000 quid gt3 so yeah. just call it there and go home and um yeah, I guess that comes with age a little bit as well. I used to be a lot less sensible with the choices that I made, but I also used to be in much more affordable sort of yeah. normal cars as well back then. And ultimately, at some point, you are going to come unstuck. Yeah, if, it has to happen, and you learn that. Yeah, or, or didn't this happen? It's people like other stuff that's not in your control. Yeah, happens on tracks. Did you have yeah. someone in a car spin in front of you? Uh, yeah, in the that, M3? Was, that was in the E30, yeah, so it was in the M3, um, and we were on a big Silverstone track day, and it was a 996 GT2. I was absolutely gutted about the whole situation, but yeah, I sort of made some bad decisions to slow down and let somebody pass. He didn't, he didn't go past until actually on the corner. Then when he accelerated, he span out in front of me, and I thought I could make it past him, and I couldn't. So, Uh-oh. yeah, one of those things that in uh, sort of the 10-plus years I've been doing track days and never having an incident, you are always – you keep that in your mind that one day just – something will happen things will align and you will end up in contact with something or somebody at some point it has to happen regardless of how skillful you think you are or not it will happen yeah someone could drop some fluids like any these things do happen and unfortunately you know is is what it is um what what other stuff i'm I'm on your instagram having a little look through we'll talk about the merce logo in in a bit nine 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 six four turbo thing yeah so that's a um, car that I uh, we flew over to Japan. I bought and flew over to Japan and drove that through Japan. Uh, sort of a thousand kilometres with my wife. Sort of big memories nice. car. That one really nice before shipping it back. Uh, it's a tuna car from Japan built by Promodet and Rauwelt, um, quite famous yeah. uh, body kit designer, aero designer uh, yeah. over there. So the bodywork is done by Rauwelt at Rauwelt headquarters but it's different to most of them because it's a smooth fender kit. So it's a wide body kit that's only ever so slightly than, wider than the original turbo arches mm. as well because it was an original um, 964 turbo 3.3. But yeah, that thing, again, I got wildly carried away with over um, the five-plus years that I've owned it, and it's now an absolutely terrifying 640-horsepower family transport it's got a baby seat <laughs> in the back of it so um a lot of my cars are struggled because they don't they don't have three seats or four seats yeah uh, so this one was the one that i i do take the, the littler now in in the back family days out but uh you don't you obviously don't get to wind it up particularly when she's in the car yeah. but then i've had a, a few goes out in it recently because it's kind of coming up to winter and i probably won't be driving it too much few spirited drives and that thing is wildly dangerous <laughs> it, is, <laughs> it is so so quick and um it's it's such a beautiful car but when you're sitting inside it i'm just always the it's in vision at all times is how thin the eight pillar is and that's a giveaway yeah. of an old car and it basically with your slightly older sensible brain in gear you just remind yourself this would be a really really bad thing to crash like a really bad thing and it's a 200 mile an hour capable old yeah. school car <laughs> so yeah um it's extremely enjoyable but um just 
completely bonkers. It's I don't, it's kind of not really for anything in particular as well, which is kind of the same with Mercia Largo. It's just built because it's fun to build and fun to do something that's just a little bit that I hadn't done before and it's a little bit out there for me as well. Yeah. So where did that that one come from? Because both, I mean, both of those have got Le Mans GT vibes. Yeah. Um, and so where did the, the concept for the Mercia Largo, I mean, obviously yeah, you sort of pick up where the inspiration came from, but at what point did you go, let's, let's make this? Um, the, I, I try to think back and think how I actually persuaded myself, how I actually <laughs> man logiced my way through this, this being a good idea. And it was done incrementally with just little decisions here or there. And obviously, um, I'm not really a supercar guy. I never really have been. I've never really thought I'd be in a position to own anything like that in the first place as a completely standard car. But uh, lucky enough, I was. It needed quite a bit of work doing to it. It's a very bad condition. Um, it's a. It was what was at the time Cat C car, so right. it's a crash damaged car, uh, badly repaired, and I did a lot to it to sort of make it a nice, relatively normal but stylish uh, Mercy Lago. It's an LP640 as well. Um, and then once I once I owned it, I was obsessing more and more over the things that made me want to own it in the first place. And that came back to, uh, I think it's a Belgian hill climb video on YouTube of, of the writer <laughs> engineering RGT cars yeah, um, with fully open exhausts, um, making more volume than should be allowed. Uh, but the best noise, you know, I'd ever, I'd ever heard of any car that ever existed as far as yeah. I was concerned at the moment. And there's just a little thing that, sparks in my brain that like if it exists if it can if they can do that with a race car you know would it be possible to make something inspired by because i'd always call things that i do like that inspired by um and create a, a road car version of it yeah um so it's a long long road to actually ending up with a car that looked like that the mechanical side of things i decided to make my own um v12 itb setup for it um right because it's got like a really big uh aluminium airbox on it with quad throttle bodies which is really takes away any induction noise um out of that car so i created this um custom itb intake for it and I was talking to writer engineering who make the cars make the rgt cars and gt1 cars and i had this picture that i'd had as my desktop for for years and it was of this particular gray it was kind of um the mule of the latter generation lp640 gt1 version so yeah. the, the Le Mans version of the car and um i'd had this picture on my desktop for ages and i just i'd look at it casually and then ended up talking to right engineering about something can't remember whether it's the headers maybe it was the manifolds maybe and then i was just like have you got any? <laughs> have you got any panels? And um, they happen to have. They've got a large stock of used, um, previously damaged panels that they yeah. send back to the manufacturer and have repaired. Um, and this particular set of panels were from the, I think it's the 2009 um, Inter Progress Bank Le Mans car. So wing, front wings, front fenders, whatever you want to call them, side skirts, uh, front bumper, rear bumper. And the slightly narrower rear wing, um, and they were like 
you know you can't fit these to, <laughs> to a road car. And I was like, well, let's just get them here and like, I'll see I'll see whether we can make it work or not. And ended up doing the deal, got the bits. It took quite a while, got them here. And um, yeah, they 100% did not even slightly fit. Or had. There was no way at all they were ever going to work yeah. on the car. But just through stubbornness, I kind of um, decided to make the first cut of the front part of the chassis and the um, the structure of the car and rebuild it to try and make these panels work. And then sort of two years down the line from that point and uh, more work than anybody would probably ever believe for a quote-unquote body kit. Because <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's called that by quite a lot of people. It's like, oh, I want to fit the GT1 body kit to my Mercy Largo. It's like, well... It's about as far away from a body kit as you can possibly imagine. It is reinvent your car type of thing. Mm. Um, new doors, new door hinges, new uh, structure to support all of that. And clearance for the front wheels was the biggest problem because on a standard Murcielago, when you lower it enough to make this kit work, the door hinges are just right in the way. Right. Um, the whole way the scissor, scissor doors work, the whole structure for that, everything's in the way. So you just have to chop it out and reinvent it that's <laughs> massively complicated engineering exercise yeah and then everything that you do obviously you choose to do one thing that gives you then 10 more jobs after that to sort of get back to the point that you were before yeah very very big project very very big would you do do it again absolutely not had i known but i love the end result so you know it's everything i hoped it would be and probably a little bit more um but that's thanks to also the people that helped me do it. So our neighbours next door at Dynatalk, Craig, Craig Taylor and Gaz from TGL Bodyworks, who basically had it in his, his place for nearly two years, um, sorting out all the lines, making it all, look all perfect, all the structure. He did the hinges as well because we'd already had one attempt at them for the doors, mm. just made everything right. And um, yeah, it kind of looks like it's meant to be like that, but the details that you can't see or you can when you open the door that's what really took really took the time to make right mm. and also the race panels as well they're terrible terrible quality okay. they're, yeah you know it looks fantastic in a photograph yeah at Le Mans from you know taken from I don't know 100 meters away um, <laughs> but yeah you get up close to this stuff and it's, it's race race car parts and it's not just race car parts it's race car parts before they did CAD design on panels and things like that so everything's got a handmade element to it and then in addition to that it had also been crashed a lot of the parts had so yeah. they needed significant work to uh, make right it now having sort of been through that process would you go if you were doing it again would you sort of scan a car and make your own panels or something instead or i I just, if it, knowing what I know now, I just don't think I would do it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, I've, been, I've been in this situation many times before with all of my builds where they all escalate and it all gets a bit silly and it gets a bit much at times. But then at the end of it, you're really happy with the end result. And, you know, that is how this one has worked. But this was so extreme and um, such a lot of work uh, and time and stress. I, I'm just not sure whether a, 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 another one of those could ever exist. Yeah. Uh, and lots of people have contacted me, some of the big YouTubers, or pretty much any supercar YouTuber yeah. you can imagine, has kind of been in contact sort of asking 
whether they can get to the body kit. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Um, and stuff like that. And, uh, it's such a long road to explain in detail why it's not just that. Yeah. Um, and the only way to do it is by watching our boring videos of us building the car <laughs> on YouTube. Um, there's a massive playlist, and it was kind of one of the first times that I picked up the camera to do YouTubing as it's known today. Yeah. It, and, yeah, it's... Uh, some of it's highly technical and rather dull. But yeah, it kind of does tell the story watching throughout of some of the trials and tribulations of what it took to get the car looking like it does now, sitting there looking pretty um, in its it perfect, perfect looks, Instagram pup photos. <laughs> it looks so sick. Yeah. Like, I saw Thanks, it at uh, a uh, supercar driver event, I think. Yeah. Um, and yeah, it looks it looks so badass and it just looks like it shouldn't be on the road awesome. is, is yeah. the, the thing it just looks like the race car with no livery which was exactly what I go for in a lot of my my stuff is to make it look yeah. like it's kind of not meant to be there kind of uh, a race car is on the road but looks well made as well not like race cars generally yeah. are yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah 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 when you start looking at them you're like hmm yeah this is like <laughs> it's designed to be taken off and put back on again yeah. really quickly and that's about it. I saw yeah. one of the um, one of the GT1 cars, a, a Spa Classic, a, a while like a few yeah. years ago now. Um, did you go to an event recently and drive with some of the race cars? I went to. I was invited by Writer Engineering because that's that's quite a mad thing. The um, after putting the uh, the pictures and videos out of the car being complete, uh, we had received an email from. Um, a random guy called uh, Luke Donkerwalt, who is the original Murcielago designer. He designed mm. the Murcielago, oh, so. and he also worked with Writer Engineering to design the RGT and GT1 cars. And he sent me an, a personal email, just essentially just saying, what you've done is absolutely sick. Um, it's, <laughs> it's made me go back to my archives of, um, of the old stuff that I used to do with Lamborghini because it didn't work with them anymore, let's see. And um, so that was number one amazing thing um, that happened with that car. And the second was the response from Writer Engineering, from Hans Writer. Um, he absolutely adores the car. And um, he invited me to just come and park it with uh, his four, four or five uh, RGT and RSVs that they were taking to this, this Spa 24 hour. And some of them were supposed to be racing. Uh, they had some issues, but um, yeah, I was just invited as a guest there to park my cool. silly, silly little road car next to these iconic race cars that were the reason why I built this thing in the first place. So massive dream come true. There was no driving involved at it. It was obviously a, a big race weekend, but just yeah, being invited to be there and being alongside those cars was absolutely surreal. Like that's so cool mental and again we filmed the whole thing it's um it's a little bit of a weird one because most of the stuff that we do it's either highly technical sort of builds of cars or it's using the cars on track this was mm. a little bit strange because we were just taking a car to an event but it was an amazing event and the reason we were taking it there was super cool so uh yeah big big memory for me that one definitely. yeah that is yeah the whole thing kind of coming full circle. Super cool. How have you found the whole YouTube? You've been on it for a while now. Yeah, well, we had, we've had a Driftworks YouTube channel for years, for you know, as long as I can remember with the business, but it was more back then about putting videos on YouTube as a way to then 
put them onto forums mm. <laughs> to show people okay. forums. So it was, yeah, it was, it was not the same thing that it is now. Um, I do really enjoy YouTube. I would say I'm not a particularly good YouTuber um, because I kind of, I'm a bit too old, not enthusiastic enough, slightly, slightly anxious and, and stuff. Um, but I try and sort of uh, just show what I'm doing. I don't make anything for YouTube. I just think people sort of show an interest in how I get to the point where, you know, you've got a, yeah. a Mercia Lago, a car show, how what it actually takes to get there, or even just a small snippet of what it actually takes. Because as I freely admit in a lot of our videos, a lot of the time, like we were talking about earlier, if something's kind of annoying you, you just put it away. And sometimes the camera can really add extra stress to a build yeah. that I'm not doing for YouTube. And people badger me, they give me loads of shit out of it sometimes. Well, you know, why why haven't we seen an update on this, that and the other? But sometimes you just you just have to step away from from that and actually get the job done. Yeah. Because I'm doing that, but I'm also still running a business as well, sort of exactly. quite important stuff to do at times. Uh, I'd love to spend every moment I have in the workshop um, because I really, really do enjoy doing this. But it's uh, it's just not possible. Not quite yet. Anyway. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, yeah, we do yeah. lots of builds and um, track days and sort of adventures with friends and stuff. But the, yeah, I guess the, the core side of it is showing the... Um, Showing the car builds, the uh, whatever work we're doing to the E30 M3 at the moment is going on there. 964 Turbo, we covered a lot of that. Um, yeah, it's just a great little community, and it's a little bit of what I think that we lost with, you know, the old old fogey here of what we lost from um, forums back in the day. Yeah. Sort of having sort of that community feel and contributing a little bit. Um, stuff that you've lost with all the other social media platforms, I don't think. Yeah, uh, it's it's not a patch on what you used to have as a forum that helped you, sort of helped your builds and you know create friendships and stuff like that. Was has has that been throughout the process a really big part of the the company and marketing as well? Having whether posting your stuff on forums about what you've built or videos and things, have you seen? Has that really sort of brought it the whole thing? It definitely has, and it's um, it was it's pretty much. 100% of our marketing is to not do any marketing. It's yeah. to just do what we enjoy doing, to just build cars. And as I say, none of it has ever been built with an audience in mind. It's just doing what you are passionate about. I think that's really important. I think that's what I get through uh, watching other good YouTubers, whether it's to do with cars or, or what whatnot yeah it's just being genuinely into something that's mm. that's why people enjoy watching other people if they, they're genuinely passionate um and you know i think one thing that youtube has been really helpful with is people understanding that i'm a genuine car guy yeah it's you know i can put a pictures on instagram and somebody new comes and to see my instagram they just might think i'm just some rich guy who spends, you know, silly amounts of money on, on silly cars yeah. or having them built. What they don't realise there is that often I've done a huge amount of the actual work on those cars yeah. as well. And that's the bit that I really enjoy. And the design side of things and the obsessing over things every evening of how you're going to fix that thing the next day or the next six months, bigger plans. So, um, yeah, I think that's really helped people understand that Driftworks was built out of um 
genuine enthusiasm, not yeah. not ever expecting to um, make enough money to buy supercars or anything yeah. like that. It's always just been incrementally just doing stuff, and it seems that people like it, and then hopefully people like us enough to come and buy stuff from our shop. And then that allows us to do more silly stuff. Yeah. So yeah, <laughs> it's kind of worked for years. Uh, traditional marketing gone out the window. Just do what you enjoy and show people. It seems to work. Yeah. And, and well. you saying you don't think you're a very good YouTuber. I think exactly what you've described is what makes you very good at what you do is because you care about it. The reason you're doing it is you're super passionate about it. And it only takes like a few minutes, a minute of listening to one of your videos and you can see you, the person, now whether, I'm sure, you know, we're all a bit different all the time, but like you immediately, you're looking at something and you're like, oh, I want to fix that. I want to change that. We've been working on this. This has been mm. like 10 hours in the whatever. Like you can get a, a, a small ca- capture, even in like a few minutes of what your whole attitude is about. Um, and I, I think that, that probably helps people, you know, get behind it and whatnot. I, yeah. I, it's definitely a very specific audience in terms of what the the, the standard uh, watcher of YouTube might mm. be. We are we're down down the path and yeah. then some to sort of the slightly more techie nerdy uh, and you know being British is quite an interesting thing for a lot of people in in YouTube land as well. It's quite difficult to succeed um, for many people outside of uh, yeah. your homeland. But yeah, we definitely like to we. I've just decided to stick to what we do. Not, we don't play the YouTube game in terms of chasing algorithms, and yeah. we're not not particularly good at doing things that are clickbaity or anything like that that might draw a bigger audience towards us. But that also works for us because you don't want somebody to be tricked into coming to your channel yeah. and then they're bored to tears by the first you know twenty words that you've said. Um, so yeah, it kind of works, and it's you know steadily been growing. We're still relatively small for what we do for the content that we put out. We just made it to 200,000 followers, I think, recently. Nice. So big milestone for us. I'm very happy with that. And, yeah, I'll just continue doing it as I um, as I can and when I can because, like I say, I do enjoy sharing this the reality of these builds with people um, because it's not just about chucking a checkbook yeah. <laughs> at somebody. <laughs> Checkbooks don't really exist anymore, do they? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, a bank yeah, yeah, yeah. They're like, what the hell do I do with that? <laughs> but yeah, so uh, yeah, big, it's a big part of um, of what I do daily in terms of my um, of of planning for it. But actually, picking up the camera is quite quite rare. Sometimes I just crack on. <laughs> yeah. What does your sort of day to day you like look like? What does a day with Phil look like? I imagine it varies quite a bit. It, it does, but it always starts at the moment with a two and a half year old little girl coming waking us up in the morning yeah, at five thirty. Yeah. So <laughs> she is um, she is my latest project and my most yeah. important project. So yeah, a lot of um, a lot of what I do nowadays is always with her in mind. Um, uh, so my days sort of become shorter at work, a lot shorter. Yeah. So I'll try and uh, spend time in the morning and then collect her from nursery after work. Um, yeah, I don't get to spend as much time in the evenings in the workshop as I used to, but I think that's probably a good thing, especially for a man <laughs> my age now as yeah. well. <laughs> so yeah, I do I do a lot of work when I get up with her with breakfast in the morning, sort of the laptop-based work, and then I can go in and um, I've got good people that work for me now. I don't manage 
every fine detail in the business yeah. anymore. Um, it's, yeah, we've got a good team of people um, that work for us. And, yeah, spend some time in the workshop where I can with uh, my buddy Jay, who helps me out in there as well. Yeah. How do you find having a large amount of cars now? I don't know. I don't Pain know. in the ass. <laughs> yeah. Do you, are you constantly trying to go like, is this ridiculous? This is a pain. I don't know where to put them all. And like, should I just sell all of them? That question, yeah. It's crossed my mind quite a few times as how, how to deal with the scale of it. The, it. But again, with sort of the knowledge that I've gained over the years of dealing with projects and um, how demanding there can be on you mentally, financially, and otherwise. The way that I do things now um, works really well for me because I I don't work to a deadline. I'm not working to a, yeah. a SEMA build or a getting to this show yeah. or whatever other nonsense that makes people rush and makes people not do as good a job as they possibly could. I work to my own timetable and if something needs more time or needs completely reassessing and needs some outside help, it'll just get sort of pushed to the back of the yeah. workshop for a bit. We've got these amazing car lifts that we built, um, storage ramps so we can store sort of reasonable quantity of cars at the unit now. Um, but yeah, it's, uh, it's definitely challenging. It has been challenging before, trying to juggle multiple big projects where you think you've kind of got hold on the individual cars and then all of a sudden something will happen like an engine will blow up or something's gone catastrophically wrong with that build and um, finances are not unlimited despite what (laughs) what people like to think Um, it's quite it's quite difficult that's the other thing a lot of the cars are my own as well they're not they're not to do with the business it's just it's pure passion of like whatever kind of comes out of the business a lot of it personally will go back into doing something done with the car anyway (laughs) um so yeah again just sort of learned over the years to just calm down and not work to anybody else's deadline if you can't do that right now don't stress out about it too much it doesn't doesn't really matter it'll still be there in six months it's it's a really interesting one actually i think like, is it SEMA at the moment? That's, I don't know when this yeah, podcast yeah. is going to come out, but the um, you see so many builds and I hear so many stories of things getting like mad rush to be at yeah. SEMA. And it, it, I sort of think about it a bit like um, with things like Geneva Motor Show and all that sort of stuff. Now, if you unveil something that you've built and put a lot of time into, if you have a social media platform and particularly you should probably be documenting it throughout the process because that's actually what everyone wants to see. Unveiling it in a room full of other people unveiling their stuff doesn't sound like a very good way of going about it. <laughs> not, not to me at all. Uh, and, you know, I've, I've been asked about, particularly about the Mercy Largo, like, yeah. are you bringing it to them? I was like, hell no, <laughs> why would I do that? The, um, I mean, if somebody, you know, some, somebody big, a massive sponsor wanted to come yeah. on board and just handle the whole thing, then yeah, I'd let it go. I have let it go to an event before where I wasn't um, attending yeah. in um, Poland, uh, Ultras it was called. But yeah, the, the whole idea of, build, of a SEMA build is pretty dreadful to me. It just, <laughs> it, it just makes, the first thing it makes me think is that, well, that car's not going to be built properly. It's going yeah. to be built to look like it's done properly. And, uh, you look at the details of a lot of these cars that turn up to these shows and blow people's minds with whatever engine swap or build yeah. they've done. And anybody who actually knows about cars can look at that picture and go, well, 
that doesn't run. That hasn't, <laughs> that hasn't even got a water hose on it. That's got no radiator. <laughs> that's got no... And it, it literally like... So how hard is it to make sort of a pretty-looking thing and plonk a mental-looking engine into the hole that is the engine bay? That's yeah. not hard at all. That's really quite easy to do. The difficulty is in actually making something functional that yeah. works that drives into the show which i know some people do it's not everybody who does sema builds badly but yeah it's um it's not something that i'd be keen on especially like i said before having a deadline that's not my own yeah i don't like it's a bit a bit of a weird thing working for other people is like having a boss again for me yeah that's why i've never been very good with having sponsors on race cars or anything like that because it works pretty hard to um run my own business and run my own life mm. the way that I want it and having somebody who sort of is making decisions or not even requests almost demands on you I've never been particularly keen on it so uh yeah do things my own way in my it own is, time <laughs> it is a really tricky sort of balancing act because I, I have sponsors for the podcast who mm-hmm. absolutely I've tried to get the right people and yeah. they really very much like help at work but it is that thing of sometimes you know I wake up in the morning and I'm like I just want to do something different and I'm now like well I kind of have an obligation to these people Mm. and I kind of you know and hopefully it it all grows and it gets bigger and you get bigger sponsors and then you're like well okay is there something like is there some way I can link this that it just all works without me having to be responsible for that side of it like promote yeah. your own business or whatever rather than and, promoting and someone else's yeah i mean that that sort of just comes out of uh, being a good businessman as well and you know doing the right thing by people as well which is super important it's um it's just yeah sort of the whole whole sort of reporting back to people with the cars um and, and allowing them to make decisions on what i do with my car it's something I learned from the early days. I was yeah. not particularly comfortable with, and I, I had had very good um, sponsors, and I do have good sponsors uh, still who support the YouTube channel and things like that. But they're just guys who let they understand that just letting me crack on yeah. and do what I do in some way has some value to them. <laughs> and I think that's becoming a much more valuable sort of thing. It's like associating with people because of the right reasons rather than I get loads of emails. You must get a bazillion from random companies being like, can you just advertise this thing on your channel? And you're like, you know, no one's going to buy it, right? Yeah. No one cares. How how do you think that's going to work? I don't, (laughs) I don't understand it. Yeah. I get it. I get kind of in the, um, in America, uh, advertising is very different over there. Very different um, with, with stuff. So yeah, I do understand sort of why the paid, mentions in youtube videos and stuff works over there it makes me cringe but you know i totally get it it works for that market and you know they have a very different um level of comfort with having stuff rammed down their throats in terms of advertising over there as well it's very very different yeah we're a bit too british perhaps and you can do it it just requires a lot more in-depth and work with the right people on the right project and and whatnot have you um because people have seen the builds of all these cars and the work that goes in and stuff, have you found when you try and move them in, I don't know, move them on. I don't know whether you've actually, have you sold any of the sort of bigger personal car projects ever? Um, is there, no, not, is, is nothing, that been relatively easy or not? No, not nothing substantial. And, and I, I'd be incredibly uncomfortable doing it. I have, 
I've had offers for stuff, you know, yeah. reasonably substantial offers for um, more recently, like the 964 Turbo over the past, yeah. past few years, Mercy Largo. Questions are limited on that one. Lots of people are super keen and find out that oh, you built it right-hand drive, so it's no good to okay. the yeah. biggest audience for that type of thing. <laughs> um, but, yeah, I've never... I've never had to do it, but I'd also be probably quite uncomfortable doing it because the uh, all the little things that the with Mercy Largo build, for example, it's the first time I've ever done that. It's uh, massively complicated. The end result looks fantastic, but actually, there's a little bit in the back of my head that wants to pull the whole car <laughs> apart again and do some things in a slightly different way. Yeah, um, and they. They don't. They don't eat away at me because, like I say, the end end result is fantastic. But if I was to ever consider uh, selling that to somebody, I'd either have to document all of my thoughts and issues and get them to acknowledge this yeah. that, and the other. My fear is that you know if somebody would take something apart. It's, it happens between garage to garage with a lot of cars from time to time. You have work done at one garage, yeah. something is wrong. You go to another garage to go, I can't believe that garage has done all of that stuff. Well, that would definitely happen with um, if somebody wanted to pick apart my build, yeah. the GT1 build in particular. Um, they would definitely be able to pick flaws in the way we've done stuff, but it had to happen that way because yeah, yeah, there was yeah. no other way for me to do it because of the first time I've done it and it's the only way that I knew how to do it at that time. So yeah, I wouldn't be particularly keen on selling anything that I own. Not the 964 Turbo would be, it's a lot more like a kind of normal build. build. Yeah. Um, there's so many of those sort of highly modified uh, 964 Turbos in the world. Nothing that I've done is massively new or spectacular. It's just done, executed in a pretty nice way, in yeah. my opinion. I wouldn't be worried about that. But um, I've sold a drift car in the past. <laughs> um, a very complicated drift car but i usually end up kind of coming full circle and questioning whether i should have that back at some point as well yeah. even stuff that would be of no use to me nowadays yeah and um, i guess like like with the mercy Largo, there was a real like vision inspiration behind the build you've put so many hours of, and personal amount of personal time and effort into the build and then you've had some cool stuff around using the car and whatever Mm. It means so much to you that maybe I guess letting it move on. I guess if you're going to do something else that has equal, then, yeah, um, it, it means a lot. It definitely does. Um, you know the that's that car in particular. Like for instance, the Spa Trip and meeting mm. people like you know the guys from Writer Engineering, uh, things like that. The, the, those memories are massively important to me as part of my life there's obviously there's a you know there's almost a number for anything there's silly numbers of that course. you would be you know you would never say i will never ever sell that because somebody crazy with loads of money might come and just yeah. offer you silly amounts of money for it you'd be stupid not to take it but um yeah in general like the, again coming back to 964 actually as, as i say i have had offers on that which are substantial really quite big amounts of money but that i have that memory of driving through Japan with yeah. it, with um, with my wife, and sort of breaking down in it, and all the drama that we went through, all the fun and um, awkward situations. Every memory that I have in that car just is directly associated with it. Yeah. Every time I look at it, I can remember, you know, driving through the toll roads at silly speeds, yeah. and yeah, all all those fun times. So that would be very difficult for me to move on that one. 
It's such a pain, isn't it? Like I've got, I've got a car. Like a few, like I just look at them and I'm like, I don't know. I wake up one morning, mate. It's got to go. It's got to go. It's got to go. Like I'd rather have something else. And then I think of like the memories, and I've got a photo in a cool location with the car, and then memories, and I'm like. Oh, but how do I sell that? Like, it's really yeah. hard. I've got, I mean, I've got one at the moment. I'm actually, I have contemplated um, selling my 64 Impala. I've got an mm. old school uh, fake low rider. It's a low rider, but it's on air. But it looks like a low rider. Uh, very, very cool car. It was my wedding car. The wife didn't have yeah. one. <laughs> she just drove the McCann. <laughs> but yeah, I kind of built that car with the excuse of driving to my wedding in it. And yeah. again, I have massive huge memories of that but i unfortunately haven't driven that this year which yeah. is a real shame normally i'd sort of make a point of getting it out in summer yeah um but this year i've just not found the time for that level of potential drama that it brings mm. like it's quite a reliable thing but it's certainly not an easy thing to drive no power steering extremely low um hydraulic like manual um air ride on it as well so switches rather than actually like a computer controlling it yeah like it's it's a big effort but um i'd still just enjoy looking at it i just think it's such a shame for it to sit there that's the problem yeah. and the one year i was very similar i parked it at um caffeine and machine for a few months because i, just thought I think i saw it there real shame yeah just needed to sort of let people see it rather than getting covered in dust at the back of my workshop yeah. so yeah i kind of i'm contemplating selling that at the moment but whether i could bring myself to do it or not i just don't know <laughs> Yeah, I, I, I've, I find once it's gone, I'm fine with it. I've never yeah. gone like, oh, because there's a reason why it's going to go and inv- invariably I buy something else. But yeah, I just wish they were sort of, I don't know, this, I was into, I don't wish I was into this, but like I wish I was sort of into watches, something small that you just put in a yeah. drawer and they didn't It'd be fall easier, apart. It? <laughs> <laughs> um, so I normally wrap these up. And I realize we've actually chugged on for quite a while. We've done a, an hour and a half, which is a cool. good going. Um, with five questions. Do you have a most memorable driving trip or journey? It has to be the Japan trip. Uh, I know we've already spoken about it, but yeah, the we um, started off in Fukushima Prefect um, collecting the car near sort of Ebisu Circuit. We didn't actually end up going there, but a friend of mine out there, had bought the car for me, chased it down after I'd seen it on an auction site some some months beforehand and missed out on it. Mm. So, yeah, arriving there and uh, getting in this absolutely crazy and slightly unreliable at the time, 964 Turbo, with my wife and doing um, doing this bonkers trip that we'd kind of planned out for months of where we're going to stop. And it, it worked out. Every, pretty much everything worked out. But, yeah, the memories of, of doing that. I'd do it again in a heartbeat with my little one as well once she's yeah. old enough. I think that's that would be my plan is to maybe ship the car back to Japan and oh, do the cool. same thing with but my own responsibility in terms of the reliability yeah. of the car and understanding of how it works. Because it just we had an issue with the fuel pump in it. That's all it okay. was. It was actually wiring to a fuel pump. There was an intermittent fault and it would leave us oh, God, yeah. broken down, you know, at the top of um, a mountain overlooking <laughs> Fuji. It was incredible, the whole thing. But yeah, I would. I think when she's old enough, I'd love to go back and do the Japan trip again. That is such thing. a cool thing to do. Like buy a car somewhere else. I mean, logistically that is complicated, but then, you know, go and collect it and get the memories. Cause like memories in other places with cars. I mean, that's what it's just all about, isn't it? It's like taking them to places. 
I would, if it wasn't for cars, uh, I'm not sure what I would have ended up doing, but it would, I wouldn't have met, you know, a fraction of the cool people yeah. that I've met. I wouldn't have a business that allows me to do what I do. Um, yeah, cars are funny enough. Like I think most people can tell it when they, when they watch me on YouTube or whatever, or even my Instagram feed, you, you can, you can get that they are the hugest part of my life. Um, yeah. they've, you know, it's led me everywhere all over the world doing silly events and drifting in different countries and yeah like adventures like that um where would i be without them i, d- I have no yeah. clue i'd probably be very bored <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah or doing something else but unknown uh, if you could only drive one car for the rest of your life sports car what would it be is that particular is that a two-seater a sports car or well, I used to phrase this question, and I'm sort of evolving it slightly. It's you have one car, unlimited value, you've got to drive for the rest of your life, but you have one really, really, really cheap something else so that could possibly fulfill family duties or right. tow something or whatever. It's going to be really, really difficult to say anything interesting here because I've owned GT3s, like the... Um, what a GT3 does for me, whether mm. it's a 997 to the 992 that I've got now, it's it's what it's where I want to be. Yeah, uh, daily driving, going to a track, going to do the shopping, whatever it may be. It does absolutely everything except for that third seat at the moment. Yeah. So maybe a GT3 with the um, rear seat. Um, yeah. Because you can you can yeah. do that. You can. Uh, so get rid of the. You'd have to lose, you lose the buckets then, though. I'm not sure I could do uh, that. So a friend of mine did it to his 991.2. Uh, yeah, and with I the think, old reclining um, uh, seats. Yeah, I think he has a folding. But you yeah, could have one got, folding seat yeah. and one fixed. You could make it happen. I would okay. definitely be able to make it happen one way or another. And I think that if you had to have one, what a terrible place to be. Yeah. <laughs> 992 GT3 would probably be my choice because I think, you know, I love the classic stuff. I adore the Metzger engine. I adore the um, manual gearbox in the 997, but the as an everything car with sort of the commuting aspect yeah. as well. Uh, and what PDK does in general on track as well is absolutely phenomenal. I'm such a big fan of it in every way. Uh, I, I'm not, um, not a, it must be a manual guy or a, it yeah. must be a PDK or DCT guy. I'll have, a mix of all of them and enjoy all of them in the different circumstances. But that for me would probably be the one single boring answer. I'm afraid because yeah. I know that lots of people probably go for uh sort of 911 GT variants for the answer to that question. Yeah. But, yeah. Um, I would, <laughs> I'd love someone to do an engine swap of basically I want a GT three engine in yeah. not a GT three for my normal usage. So in a turbo turbo with a GT three engine in it, that's two wheel drive be phenomenal be so yeah. cool there's a, there's been a few few builds like that over the years and there's some really crazy stuff that um guys in america do with the pikes peak turbocharged oh um, yeah gt3 engine so high high revving but with the turbo as well still sound pretty decent but um yeah the naturally aspirated side of that engine for me is everything I, I, it obviously is a lot everything. of stuff i did i've got the v10 engine the v12 engine that i will always choose naturally aspirated over forced induction um, it just works for me yeah. <laughs> acoustically. Yeah, it, it does. It just, you get more fizz. You get more yeah, fizz definitely. from an engine like that. Yeah. Um, what do you think is the most undervalued car at the moment? What should be worth more? <clears throat> oh, that's, 
such a difficult question because I'm an old git that is used to certain cars being cheaper, being priced at a certain level. And I see what people are willing to pay now for things that are relatively normal. And I think it's brought on massively by the world of financing, um, you know, of cost of a car being X amount per month rather than actually what the actual... Well yeah, changed. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, yeah, I really struggle with everything, everything modern and modern prices, undervalued. I still think that um, E46 M3s, mm. they are, they're way up there, but I still think that's one of the the best cars that ever came out of um, the M Division when it was the real M Division, not the current M Division of <laughs> M Sport or M Level of Trim yeah. or M whatever, actual yeah. actual M3. So that and the E90 M3, for me, are the last of the real deals. And I think they're both sort of still relatively achievable yeah. money um, and potentially pretty good investment to just enjoy and not lose money on if you did come to sell it yeah. down the line. So maybe that, yeah. some kind of old entry. I think that's a good option. What's the most interesting card to you at the moment? What are you looking up, Googling, researching? <laughs> um, the, the video I've watched probably three times, which I never do uh, <laughs> on YouTube, is one of um, it's the Pagani uh, Huayra, the oh. noise that that thing makes the and my obsession with sort of uh, naturally aspirated yeah. v12 uh the header design the manifold design on that is an absolute work of art and just rpm uh, no silences the you know the rest of it as with much like the Murcielago, i really like the way Murcielago looks but it, that was a car that was built around an engine and i think that's kind of the case with yeah. the, the bugani as well it's um it's not a car I'd ever contemplate owning, but it's certainly, I mean, just purely from a financial aspect, but it's certainly uh, the most exciting thing I've heard and seen yes. go a track, go through a track for, for years and years and years. I think for that to exist in the world that we live in at the moment yeah. is hats off, hats off to them. Absolutely incredible sounding thing. Yeah. Um, and it just makes me want to make my Mercy Largo sound just even more <laughs> like that. Even though the Mercy sound is for me, pretty peak that I think is just the same sort of thing. No silences, like the same sort of thing as the RGT cars, GT1 cars back in the day. Yeah. It's no silences, um, screaming down the straight. Who really cares whether it's going like as quick as anything else, the noise and drama, yeah that it brings to every track it ends up on all day long that I'd have one of those. That is, that's it. It's like certain cars, it's just powertrain. It's like yeah. that powertrain. I don't care what it looks like. Yeah. I mean, it's nice if it looks good, but like yeah. that experience. <laughs> yeah. like when I heard the GT1 car going around Spa and yeah. you could hear it like, most of the way around the track just yeah. poof, and you know every time they're changing there's big flames coming out yeah. the back and you're like oh my uh, god this is so sick it's everything isn't it i mean that is that is it for me is i guess what excitement drama a car brings and for yeah high high rpm naturally aspirated multi-cylinder you know v8 above is where it's at yeah really for sure it. five car garage unlimited value 
Um, <laughs> I really find it quite hard to to um, to answer things like this because the, I'm really, really lucky to be in the position that I am to have a lot of the things that I, I yep. would choose in that garage. The so GT3, boring answer. Nine nine two GT3 yep. would be one of them. E30 M3 track car, my specific one because yep. you know, as I said, it's kind of built to what I think is. Uh, my perfect spec, nearly. Nothing's yeah. ever perfect, but nearly. Um, tow car slash family car. I probably have, in a perfect world of no car theft, I'd have an RS6 again. Um, I got rid of mine because I just it worried me too much. Really? But that was okay. that was my to- yeah. That was my tow car for um, quite a while. I've only got a single car garage at home, yeah. so. Um, I swapped that out for a KN Turbo recently, which is uh, great at what it does. But yeah, I'm not not really a SUV more, more guy. More of a wagon person, yeah. Yeah. Um, I would probably have, just because I've never experienced it and never built one, I'd probably have a, like a, an underground racing twin turbo Hurricane. Oh, okay, yeah. Um, something, but really silly, not like any of those weak you know, 1,600 horsepower <laughs> jobbies. It'd have to be like Two plus. the 3,000 horsepower <laughs> one. That, yeah. Completely useless on the road, but just, yeah, yeah. mind-bending speed. Um, and I guess probably if you, it, it'd be impossible to make happen because you're not allowed to have them in your own garage, I believe, but a Huayra R would probably be, nice. <laughs> be there as well. Um yeah, I think they're looked after by Pagani. You can't actually I don't have know. Yeah, one maybe. of those, like the FS, FXX. I don't I think. think it's they're quite as bad as Ferrari, as in right. like you pay me the money and you just don't get the car. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and you can't sell it and you can't do anything like that. Yeah, But I yeah, that, that would probably work out as a pretty exciting sort of long-term five-car garage yeah. to do most of the stuff I want to do with cars. It'd be pretty good. It'd be pretty good. Yeah, not bad. All right, well, thanks very much for coming on the podcast. No worries, we made it eventually. We did. It's three years since you started asking me. Well, when I first asked you, I think you just had your kids. So. Just had Hannah, yeah, I think so. Life was a bit of a whirlwind then. So, no, I'm glad we could make it happen. And uh, thanks very much for uh, having me on. It's uh, been yeah. enjoyable. Yeah, it's been good. Thanks very much. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. 
I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more, with Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.